Welcome to Focus Americas, a new podcast brought to you by Scotiabank Perspectives. Focus Americas examines economic and political developments affecting countries across the Americas. Host Phil Smith, head of investor relations at Scotiabank, talks to thought leaders inside and outside the bank for their insights on the forces that are driving those developments, from Canada in the north to Chile in the south. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our Focus Americas podcast series. Today we are joined by Professor Cynthia McClintock, a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Professor McClintock's expertise is in Latin American politics. She is the former president of the Latin America Studies Association and was previously a fellow of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Her most recent book is Electoral Rules and Democracy in Latin America, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Thanks for joining us, Professor McClintock. I think our conversation will be very helpful in letting our listeners better understand the various election systems in Latin America. Let's begin with uh, 2021. This is a very busy election year for countries in Latin America. Setting aside the current political elections and maybe taking a bit of a step back, Many people outside the region still hold the view of Latin America political systems as being fragile. They may be a bit surprised to find out that most Latin American countries have vibrant and stable democracies. So maybe focusing on Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, how do these countries get to where they are today in terms of their democratic systems? Well, first, thank you very much for the invitation. It's it's great to be here. It's great to be addressing these really important questions, especially during this tumultuous year. And no, exactly. Uh, Latin American uh, countries emerged from the aftermath of the Cold War with relatively robust democracies. They really did. And I think the experience now during the Cold War of very strong leftist movements uh, presented a, a, a wake-up call to you know, uh, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, that, that they had to do a lot better, that the governments had to be legitimate or they couldn't move forward, and that the only real way to achieve legitimacy was uh, democracy. No, because there had been uh, insurgencies. You know, these are countries that are deeply unequal, you know, related to the Spanish conquest, the colonial era. And needless to say, in, in regions of severe inequality, uh, Marxism was appealing. And so in Mexico, the Zapatistas, uh, you know, in Peru, Shining Path, in Colombia, the FARC, uh, in Chile, uh, a very strong democratic left that had led to the election of Allende, you know, and, and then the savage military coup. There was just a, a commitment to doing a lot better. You know, and that led the Latin American countries, again, to say, hey, you know, if we want to move ahead at all, if we want to resolve these conflicts, uh, we're going to have to have a legitimate uh, government that's that's recognized as, you know, the government of the people. So maybe just following up on that and, and thinking about the, the design of electoral systems in Latin America, uh, how did Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru's electoral systems compare to, say, the United States? 
Yeah, well, like the United States, Latin American countries uh, have presidential systems. Now, they uh, like the idea of a, of a leader, and now they saw that uh, the presidential system in the United States was working pretty well, so uh, now they, they adopted uh, no, presidential systems uniformly. Uh, but there are a lot of differences, too, between the electoral rules in uh, the United States and, and Latin America in particular. Now, most of the Latin American countries adopted a a runoff rule. In other words, is a second round uh, for the election of the president. Uh, that's the case in Chile, uh, Colombia, and uh, Peru, that the election is in two stages. And the, the key reason for that was the tendency to more parties you know, in Latin America. So you know, if there, as in the upcoming uh, Peru first round, there are some 18 political parties, 18 candidates, that's a lot, right? So uh, in, uh, if one wants a, a president elected with more than 20%, 30% of the vote, uh, you need the runoff. And so, again, this desire for a legitimate president who had a majority was, was key in this adoption of the runoff. Uh, also, a National Electoral Commission. Uh, now, in the, in the United States, everything is, is very decentralized among states. And there was a, again, in order to have uh, a legitimate system, there was a sense of, hey, we've got to work to uh, have another uh, important body of the state that will look at these elections and try to do a good job of being you know, neutral. Obviously, they didn't always achieve that goal, but that, you know, it was there that we, it should be nonpartisan or it should represent different interests and having a National Electoral Commission that would, you know, go the extra mile to, to trying to achieve a legitimate election. So can you maybe briefly touch upon the, the political spectrum uh, in these countries or in, in Latin America in general as compared to, say, the U.S. or Canada? I think this is some area where investors struggle a little bit. You know, in, in the U.S., there's broadly left and right between the Democrats and the Republicans. But for example, in Peru, there are over 10 major candidates for president in the first round uh, this, this coming up. Looking at that race, can an interested observer, such as an investor, use uh, sort of the U.S.-Canada left-right political spectrum lens in, in terms of evaluating those races? Well, certainly the left-right spectrum is useful. You know, and there is definitely, you know, just as you know, in the United States, a you know, left that advocates for state intervention in the economy, a much larger state role, and a right that favors the, the market. So that's that's very important. And it's very evident, you know, in Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru, with presidents being elected from, from both left and right points on the spectrum uh, over the last 20, 25 years. That said, uh, overall, the left in Latin America tends to be stronger. You know, as I've mentioned, these are countries where you know, inequality has been uh, very severe, and it's not surprising that, that there is a strong left. Often in Chile, for example, it was said that there were kind of three-thirds, you know, and the, that was referred generally to in the what might have been in the ideological spectrum, a uh, kind of pro-market Republican type right, and then maybe uh, the Democratic Party in the center, and then uh, no, the, the further left, the kind of Bernie Sanders folks uh, in the United States being uh, at the further left. So the left has tended to be stronger. So that's a really important uh, difference, but it's also the case that populism has been very strong uh, in Latin America. And by populism, uh, we scholars tend to mean a uh, leader who who is divisive, you know, who tries 
it's very hard to appeal to his or her base who uh, also says, you know, I alone can do it. You know, it's, it's I, I can, everyone else is corrupt, but I can throw the rascals out and I can uh, do everything to transform the society. So tremendous promises in the, in the leader uh, himself or, or herself. And, uh, we see that, you know, in Mexico, Lopez Obrador, uh, is considered a populist. Bolsonaro in Brazil, considered a populist. And there, that's a, you know, Lopez Obrador is on the left and Bolsonaro is on the right, but they're similar in the sense that they're both, uh, populist. And, no, there's a variation in terms of, uh, you know, how much sort of democratic institutionalization versus the populist uh, temptation, you know, in the, in the different countries. But overall, this populist tendency has been, you know, stronger in Latin America than, than in the United States traditionally. Now, do you see that populism getting gaining momentum or is it is it pretty much a constant across LATAM these days? would say that it has gained momentum. Again, the examples of Lopez Obrador in Mexico, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. Alvaro Uribe in Colombia was uh, considered a populist. This is a while back. Now, the current president, Duque, no less so. Uh, political parties are very institutionalized in, in Colombia. In Chile, no, again, parties have been better institutionalized than elsewhere. Democracy has a long, long history in Chile. Uh, but populists have come to the fore there. I'd say the the issue has been a little bit more, you know, left-right, but populism uh, does endure. In Peru, populism has been, uh, you know, important for some time, but there's, you know, a lot of concern about the upcoming, you no know, election, uh, you know, in Peru, too. The candidate who was sort of most, is perceived as most populist has uh, dropped in the polls recently for a number of reasons, uh, but uh, Keiko Fujimori is usually considered a populist, uh, although certainly, you know, less uh, less so than one or two of these other candidates that that emerged, you know, this uh, this time around. So, uh, what happened in the last couple of years in Latin America was uh, more uh, concern about corruption, which on the one hand is a very good thing. You know, the countries were saying, "Hey, you know, look at." Uh, what's been going on recently in terms of uh, infrastructure bids where you know, too many politicians have been uh, on the take. They've been uh, going for wrong projects because they were on the take. And you know, this has been going on for a long time in Latin America, but the effort to, to really stop it, uh, I think, was important. But on the other hand, that led to many presidents being acknowledged and called out for corruption and people looking at disgust and saying, hey, yeah, it's true. All our all our presidents have been corrupt. This is this is dreadful. And then sort of this turn away again, the the view that, hey, you know, the populists claim that all these uh, presidents have been rascals. Everyone else is corrupt. You know, that had no more residents. So it's been a, a, a difficult time. It's a it's a tough challenge because, again, on the one hand, uh, it's a obviously very important to control corruption. On the other hand, calling it out does tend to mean you're saying, hey, our past leaders have been uh, complicit. So maybe um, to, to close off, given the the COVID pandemic, there's obviously cha- challenges in facing not only Latin American elections, but you know certainly elections in many parts of the world. When you, you factor in those challenges with obviously the general rise in populism that, that you mentioned, 
uh, you know, that, that creates certain amounts of risk. But maybe for outside observers, turning to the other side of the coin here for a second, what are some of the areas that give you hope when you, you look at the future of democracy in, in Latin America? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to to look at the bright side. I'm glad you're doing that because, you know, it has been a difficult year with COVID, but uh, definitely, you know, Latin American uh, countries there, there is a commitment to doing better. Uh, you know, we were just talking about corruption and, the, and uh, these new efforts in the last couple of years to stop that and, and correct that. And I think it owes a lot to the expansion of global norms, you know, a recognition in Latin America of you know, standards around the world. And they want often desperately to, to meet those standards. And, and that's something at times really palpable, this, this desire on the part of uh, so many citizens to say, hey, you know, we can do better. Other countries in the world do better. We're going to do better. So it can comment with that. There's kind of a looking around the world. How did these other countries do it? And we've talked a little bit about that with respect to elections, you know, that the adoption of national electoral commissions, uh, other things like sort of the Sunday vote, you know, all these countries, you know, election day is Sunday so that more people can go out there. So so a lot of countries, again, looking around the adoption of the runoff, we, we can do better. We can modify uh, our uh, past. We can change it. We can do better. We can do better going forward. So I think that's really important. The recognition, I mean, in the depths of despair in so many countries with COVID-19, I think it's been a wake-up call that science and technology matters. And, you know, on the one hand, of course, many countries looking to uh, the United States, looking to China, hoping for for vaccines uh, from us, uh, but also saying, hey, we've got to do better. Uh, We've got to invest more in science and technology, have our own capacity. Here, so this this desire to to reform, to figure out from you know global norms and practices what they can adapt that will work for them, and allow them to to move forward, you know, despite the challenges of the last uh, last year. Well, I think that's a good a good point uh, on which to end uh, today's podcast. With that, I'd like to thank Professor McClintock for joining us today and for sharing her views on democracy in Latin America. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to the latest edition of our Focus America podcast series. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.